Hi, friends. Thank you for tuning in to the City Church Lenten podcast series we are calling Again and Again, God's Sacred Refrain. During this series, we will emphasize the God who meets us, comes to us, never gives up on us, and is for us again and again. During Lent, we are also being invited into the spiritual practice of walking with Jonathan Stahls of Intrinsic Paths. Each week, Jonathan will be sharing a podcast, video, and list of resources to help you on your journey of walking through Lent. You can find out more at citychurchsf.org walking. Again, thank you for listening to this series. And if you would like to support the work of City Church, you can do so by visiting our website at citychurchsf.org give. Finally, we would love to see you at our weekly live stream service at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, or Twitch. Grace and peace to you in this season of Lent. The scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, You must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light, and do not come to the light, so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light, so that it may be clearly seen 
that their deeds have been done in God. The word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer. God, we are angry and frustrated because the rich are becoming richer and the poor are becoming poorer. Amen. Well, good morning, friends. Grace and peace to you as we continue our journey through the season of Lent by reflecting today on what it means that God loves again and again. If you have any familiarity with this passage, and it's okay, or maybe better than okay if you don't, because you're less likely to be encumbered by a whole host of preconceived interpretations. But if you know this story, you may also know that Nicodemus is one of the more maligned characters in the Bible. You may have heard some of the caricatures. Nicodemus is a coward for coming to Jesus under cover of night, a dimwit for not understanding, a quitter for fading away into silence about halfway through the chapter. Maybe not all, but many of us familiar with the story have this response of incredulity that he had Jesus right in front of him, but didn't have ears to hear or the presence of mind to listen, to really listen and understand, or the faith to believe. And so we castigate him for failing to understand Jesus' words. We shake our heads in disbelief. Typical Pharisee, we might say, with not a little contempt and irony, I might add. No matter how you come to this story, I want to invite you to consider the possibility that we are, some of us anyway, more like Nicodemus than we'd like to admit. For starters, in the context of Jesus' lifetime, did you know that the Sadducees represented the conservative faction of God's chosen people. They were the ones who only read the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, known as the Torah. And they were literalists, believing every part, word for word, but also refusing to look beyond the Torah. In contrast, the Pharisees, the group to which Nicodemus belonged, were the religious progressives of their day. Some scholars have gone as far as to say they were theological liberals, willing to find God's revelation in a variety of texts beyond the Torah, willing to look even at non-canonical sources, the oral law. In other words, they were open to new ideas, even new beliefs, that went beyond the scope of their inherited scriptures. For example, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection because it wasn't in their strictly delineated holy scripture. But the Pharisees did. They were open-minded about such things. And this may be why Nicodemus comes to Jesus shortly after chapter 2, after Jesus overturned tables at the temple and eviscerated the tradition of the temple, the domain of the Sadducees. And here I'm still thinking about the marvelous preaching of the word we heard last week from Danielle Mayfield and Kelly Nicondea, where they taught us about Jesus interrupting a system of commerce, which happened to be the religious establishment of the day. 
you can bet the Sadducees to recycle an old joke were sad, you see, about Jesus' attack on their traditions. But a Pharisee, a rival of the Sadducees, might have seen what Jesus was doing and actually approved. You know the old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's likely why, not long after that incident, in the very next chapter of John, this rabbi comes to Jesus, maybe because he saw in Jesus a kindred spirit, or at the very least, a theological ally. He doesn't know for sure, but he's heard enough to want to hear more. To his surprise, however, Jesus has hard words for him too. It's not the first time nor the last time in John's Gospel that Jesus' hearers are completely baffled by his teaching. What's really interesting here is the variety of responses Jesus has to people who have a hard time understanding him. To see this, we need look no further than the next chapter where we get an altogether different version of Jesus as we overhear him talking with a woman at a well. It's about as opposite as you can imagine, from the context to the unfolding details of the story where Jesus meets this woman in the light of the noonday sun, as opposed to Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus in the dark of night. Nicodemus approaches Jesus thinking he knows exactly who Jesus is, in his own words, a teacher who has come from God, which stands in contrast to the woman who audaciously says to Jesus, Who do you think you are? And why are you talking to me right now? I'm paraphrasing, but only a little bit. And it's to that person Jesus reveals the messianic secret, the most important truth about who he is. To this woman he had just met, to someone who wasn't even very friendly towards him, Jesus reveals the highest gospel truth to her. And she effectively becomes the first evangelist and preacher in the Gospel of John. In other words, Jesus was capable of speaking at different registers to different people. It just so happens that in our text, he's talking to a man. I think that's significant. We'll get to that. Who happens to be a religious leader who also happens to be a progressive and an intellectual, who has a pretty high estimation of his own spiritual wisdom. And Jesus basically tells him, you don't know anything, do you? That's in verse 10. And this next part is really strange for Jesus because he's actually one of the best conversationalists in the world, a master of the back and forth. But in this case, he's content to let Nicodemus just sit quiet for the rest of their conversation. To be clear, Jesus does not want to say to everyone, you don't know anything and you really should stop talking. But here in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, that is exactly the message. So the thing we need to see or maybe feel is how disruptive Jesus' words are for Nicodemus and his entire way of life. He may have come to Jesus liking what he saw and heard. 
he may have found his heart strangely warmed by this mysterious rabble-rousing rabbi. The problem was he had no idea what he was in for when he went to see Jesus. The truth of the matter is none of us ever do. Jesus overturning tables at someone else's house, namely the Sadducees, that was fine for this Pharisee. But Jesus overturning Nicodemus' life and hopes and dreams, not so great. Where do we see this? Well, if we read the entire chapter carefully, especially where Jesus tells Nicodemus he must be born again, Jesus is telling him to consider all of his life's work as rubbish and to start over again. Jesus is more or less doing the same thing he was doing in his critique of the temple in John chapter 2, but he's adapting it to a critique of Nicodemus and the Pharisees. And he uses the plural you all in, in a critique of the movement of the Pharisees as a whole throughout the chapter. And just as he said before, tear down this temple and I'll raise it up again. Here he is saying, lay down your life and I'll raise you up again. That's what it means to be born again. Here's the rub though from the text. It appears Nicodemus appreciated the institutional critique of the temple. What he didn't like was the personal critique or the invitation to personal transformation. So long as Jesus was telling the crowds what was wrong with the Sadducees and their temple establishment, Nicodemus liked what he heard. But as a Pharisee and as a progressive who probably liked to make fun of how backwards or narrow-minded the Sadducees were, Nicodemus, the religious teacher and leader, wasn't ready for Jesus to fix his sights on his own sense of self-righteousness and sophistication. And so Nicodemus' response is, how can this be? I thought I was going to hear more about tearing down the temple, and now you're talking to me about tearing down my life, my beliefs, my group identity. And Jesus says, I like your willingness to question everything. I want you also to question yourself. Not only is Nicodemus unexpectedly stumped, he is utterly silenced. And this too is by design for Jesus, who says, The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And once more, Nicodemus asks, How can this be? And these are the last words we hear from him. I am helped and challenged by Barbara Brown Taylor um, here, who writes about this, this scene in the Gospel of John. Nicodemus is not a special case. No one knows where the Spirit comes from or where it goes. No one. The only thing that sets Nicodemus apart is that he is so uncomfortable with his unknowing. His problem is that he thinks he ought to know. This is a difficult teaching for those who want to feel secure in their relationship with God, especially if their security depends on knowing how things work. And of course, she's being gentle here, but it's not just Nicodemus, it's many of us. Because of his religious training, Nicodemus likely had many criticisms of the temple 
and the sacrificial system it represented, which the Sadducees valued so much because that's what they saw in the Torah. While he, Nicodemus, had nearly an unshakable faith in his own theology with the oral law of God as taught by the Pharisees. You see, at the same time they held the physical temple at arm's length, the Pharisees participated in a temple religion and culture of their own making. And Jesus says, just as the temple must be destroyed and raised anew, your notions of God and God's law must be destroyed and raised anew. And you, not just the temple, but you must be born again. A careful reader might notice it's very similar language to chapter 2. And the change Jesus wanted to see for the temple is now transferred to Nicodemus. And it's the same change from old life to death to new life that Jesus wants to see in him. And just as the Spirit moves like the wind and you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going, you must be born of the Spirit. Die to yourself and let the Spirit be your mother as she guides you through new birth and into a new, more spacious world. If this sounds weird to us, we might have to read verses 5 through 8 more closely, where Jesus says, The Spirit gives birth. So the Spirit is a mother figure, and we are to follow the Spirit and what she is doing in the world. Then we will know the love God has for the world. Follow the Spirit, and the Spirit, she will teach you and guide you into all truth, says Jesus. Now admittedly, this is hard stuff to wrap our minds around. To quote Barbara Brown Taylor again, you do not know, Jesus says, not because you are stupid, but because you are not God. So relax if you can, because you are not doing anything wrong. This is what it means to be human, she says. It bears repeating, this is what it means to be human. We do not know, we are not supposed to know, and yet we are called to trust and follow and find life in God's love even when that love calls us to die. No wonder Nicodemus was silent, for following the Spirit would mean a death blow to everything he thought he knew about God. And so, dear friends, it is with us. Even as we critique the temples others build, we have temples of our own making. Do you realize this? We likely don't even recognize our temples of progressivism, inclusion, and hospitality, which in many ways serve to reinscribe our positions of power as teachers and patrons from whom the rest of the world receives and benefits as students and guests. It's easy to assume the role of, bene of benevolent hero, not realizing that while we strut about feeling good about our own spiritual enlightenment and theological sophistication, people are dying all around us. How can I say this? Well, we still have a theology that has nothing to say to mass incarceration, church-sanctioned violence, and anti-Asian discrimination. We still have a faith system unable to truly challenge and dismantle racism 
with little to offer beyond thoughts, prayers, and weak gestures of tokenism. We still have churches that masquerade as multi-ethnic churches when they are white-owned and white-run organizations with no room for voices of color. We still spend too much time venerating white male voices propped up by a man-made canon. At the risk of over-personalizing this, can I just tell you, in my own education, in my own education, I have read and absorbed so much white theology written by men. The fact of the matter is that if I spent the rest of my life not reading another white male theologian, not listening to another white male preacher, it would still not correct or right-size my warped spiritual and theological imagination which I confess to you is much too white and much too male. One common response to all of this angry nonsense is to assert a pure, unadulterated gospel based on Jesus alone and scripture alone and faith alone, unfiltered through human mediation, straight from God's mouth into people's hearts because it came directly from this good book. Well, don't we realize that to insist that our point of view is not our point of view, but some universal, omniscient, cultureless, or uh, free of cultural baggage, totally transcendent, pristine version of Christian faith? That's an incredibly arrogant thing to say. And it's where white supremacy comes from. If you're offended or put off right now, please know that you're not alone. Because I am too, and so many others. Because there's nothing easy or comfortable about any of this for any of us. And that's as it should be. If you're feeling unease, may I suggest that it may be because some of us are beginning only now to realize what others have been saying for a long time, that we live in a diseased world. And it may be actually a good and right thing for us to feel the discomfort and the dis-ease. And, and, if we can stay together in this recognition of seeing our diseased world and life together. We may be in a good place to understand what Nicodemus was being confronted with in that nighttime conversation with Jesus, to which he came expecting a reinforcement of all or many of his theological beliefs. We might see that Jesus was downright offensive. After all, what does it mean to tell a grown man he must be born again, that he needs to start over? What if the problem was not that Nicodemus did not understand Jesus, but that he understood Jesus too well? He realized he would have to give up the status, the privilege, the social capital he had spent a lifetime building. What Jesus was telling him was that his understanding of God and of the non-temple, temple religion he had constructed for himself, 
had to die, that he had to start over. That's what it means to be born again. This is hard, friends, but we need to hear it. In a world where to be born again too often means being anti-science or anti-women in leadership or anti-immigration or anti-black, Jesus reminds us that to be born again means something completely different. It means to start over, trusting not in ourselves but in God as the only source of life and love in the world. And this was hard for Nicodemus because frankly, he liked the life he had built for himself. He enjoyed the stature he had in public. He enjoyed being able to walk into a room and command the attention of everyone there. He enjoyed the reverence people showed him. He enjoyed his privilege. He enjoyed being able to walk up to a group of people in the middle of a conversation and interrupt and inject himself seamlessly. He liked being able to sit in a crowded place and spread his legs. He enjoyed cutting people off mid-sentence and waxing eloquent to display his virtue. And Jesus tells him to give it all up, to be born again, to start over. Just like he said about the temple, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it. Jesus says to Nicodemus, let your life go. As you might imagine, the more you have to lose, the harder it becomes to hear this message. This is why the message of love becomes so important. If God could give up God's most prized possession because of love, if God, who is the richest, most powerful being in the universe, could give everything up, even God's most beloved, God's only begotten Son, maybe we can dare to risk everything for love because God loved first. As we conclude, I want to leave you with an insight, really an image from the theologian Shoki Ko, whose work has come up for me repeatedly in the course of studying this passage this week. Because Shoki Ko did the work of theology under the thumb of various imperial forces in Taiwan, Ko had insights into Western Christianity that might be hard or harder for some of us who are too close to it to be able to see. For instance, he talked about uh, the West's preoccupation with what he called a cathedral mentality, by which he meant our obsession with building symbols of our own greatness. His critique echoes the wisdom of Jesus in John chapters 2 and 3. We build temples and cathedrals as monuments of our own grandeur. Jesus wants to tear them down. Our obsession with celebrity preachers, teachers, and theologians, our idolatry and cult of personality might be a symptom of a cathedral mentality. Our temples, our cathedrals are too often reflections of our warped sense of ourselves, the world, and God. Expanding on this critique, Michael Naichu Poon has written, Christendom was built on stable continental plates. The cathedrals in Europe witnessed to a form of Christianity 
that rests on confessional statements, linguistic and cultural uniformity, institutional presence, and this worldly orientation. To put it simply, cathedrals are the products of those who enjoy wealth, power, and security. He goes on to describe how foreign a cathedral mentality is to migrant workers and refugees, to people who live amid tsunamis, earthquakes, riots, and wars. In such situations, makeshift tents and huts replace cathedrals to be carriers of Christianity. Peoples are on the move, and even so, faith is on the move. I wonder what happens if we combine this wisdom from theology in Asia with John chapter 3. At the very least, we might recognize the ways in which our faith must be on the move. Because the Spirit, she is on the move. And for those who dare to listen, the call of Jesus is to this joyful, liberating, and terrifying experience of being born again through that Spirit, to put our trust in God and not ourselves, even as everything around us is being torn down, including the very structure of our faith. If we have ears to hear, Jesus' words to Nicodemus that night might become an invitation to some of us this morning to recognize that it's okay not to understand how being born again happens or where it will lead us. That trusting and following Jesus means loving as he loved to the point of dying so that we might be born again. And hard as it sounds, even downright offensive and impossible, we can imagine this way of love because in the end, Jesus went on to love us in this very way, himself dying and rising again, thus showing us how again and again God loves first and calls us to do the same. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Oh, that we would have ears to hear. Please join me in prayer once more. God, we are angry and frustrated because the rich are becoming richer and the poor are becoming poorer. Give us the courage to tear it all down, to die to ourselves, that we might be born again. In Jesus' name.